The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. This is Squawkbox. Let's get into your headlines this Thursday morning. A surprise recovery. Chinese exports unexpectedly rise in April in the first upswing in overseas shipments since December. But imports fall more uh, sharply than anticipated amid lower domestic demand. Uh, a fight brews between the ECB and the German Constitutional Court as the central bank's governing council reportedly plans to resist this week's ruling and not justify its bond buying program. The Bank of England looks set to hold steady on rates and indeed on asset purchases as investors focus on the Monetary Policy Committee's forecast for the economy and how it may recover from historic declines. Plus, you've got the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying easing measures will start from Monday, but pushes out his detailed announcement to the weekend amid talk only few restrictions will be lifted. We have to be sure that the data is going to support our ability to, uh, to do this. I think it would be a good thing, Mr Speaker, if, if people had an idea of what's coming the following day. Gorgeous sunrise set to come over the city of London this morning. And as Steve said, we are focused on the Bank of England. We'll get back out to him a little bit later on to preview what's expected. But let's focus on this Chinese data. It's got a few people scratching their heads. The exports jumped by 3.5% in April. That beat estimates for a sharp decline as factories in the world's second largest economy began to reopen. Now, the increase helped offset a 14.2% drop in imports during the month. That was the biggest decline since 2016. The country's trade surplus grew to $45.34 billion, which was a long way above expectations. Let's get out to Sherry, who has more on this story. And Sherry, I think it's got a few people scratching their heads because we've seen this cratering of demand in the Western world as economies have gone down uh, into lockdown. So the question mark, I guess, is, is really why have we seen this surprising rebound in export numbers given that we think that we've got this freeze in economic activity in many of the uh, Western countries that would have been importing those products. That's right. I mean, absolute head scratcher. And that's exactly what I was doing when I had to break these numbers, Jeffrey. But uh, I think it's uh, a couple of things. One, uh, according to Citigroup's China economist that I was talking to earlier this morning on CNBC, he was talking about a boost in the month of April when it comes to Chinese medical exports. So perhaps goods like face masks manufactured and exported out of China might have helped this number. But that doesn't really explain the whole picture. I mean, this kind of beat is something that we don't really see every day. And also, uh, Oxford Economics was talking about how there might have been a boost coming from Chinese exporters who are just scrambling to make up for all the losses, all the lost business they couldn't make in the first quarter of this year. And this kind of 
massive beat uh, when it comes to exports and demand destruction when it comes to import side of things in China certainly makes things difficult for a lot of analysts, investors and economists as well. And uh, I think it's important to talk about how there are people out there who are not really letting the guard down just yet. They are not really reading this as a something that indicates some kind of you know sustainable recovery. But in fact, they are just looking at this as something very much tentative. In fact, like I said, the folks at uh, Oxford Economics was talking about how the exports might actually be damaged even more because of the global lockdowns. All the trading partners outside of China are going through lockdowns and there would be some kind of reflection of demand destructions absolutely pretty much across the board outside of China. So, uh, you know, sure, it's good to see this kind of rebound, but I wouldn't read too much into this as a uh, part of a trend. But I think it's interesting how the, you know, Yuan, the CNH actually made up for some of the losses earlier this morning on the back of this kind of numbers as well. Guys, back to you. Terrific. Uh, Sherry, thank you very much indeed for that. We'll talk about those uh, numbers uh, in a bit more detail in just a moment. I just want to bring you the AB InBev first quarter results. And I think they're interesting because they do also reflect on the reopening of their operations in China. So it ties into what we're discussing here, which is just how quickly the Chinese economy is getting back on its feet, having come through the coronavirus pandemic. So the message from AB InBev, the world's largest brewer, we have reopened all of our breweries in China. China. By the end of March, almost all of our wholesalers had resumed operations. Uh, in March, we observed a steady recovery in the in-home and restaurant channels in China, but revenue declined 45.4% in the first quarter in China as we faced a volume decline of 46.5%, which gives us a little bit of flesh on the bone as we try and understand what the implications are of the Western lockdown going into the second quarter. The company says uh, we saw first quarter revenue decline by 5.8%, materially impacted by lower volumes resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, That is a little greater than the market was looking for at 5.4%. The group is withdrawing its 2020 outlook in its entirety as a result of the pandemic. And in terms of uh, volume, uh, Q1 volume declined by 9.3% and their own beer volume was down 10.5%. So what does that translate to in terms of uh, revenue and, and profitability? First quarter revenue then in at $11 billion. The market was looking for a, a about 10.76. So actually, that is a beat on the headline number uh, based on the comparative with the Refinitiv poll. In terms of uh, EBITDA earnings, though, 3.95 billion as against the uh, restated 4.8 billion a year ago. And um, clearly, there is a, uh, an ongoing question mark uh, as to what the impact on uh, COVID-19 will look like in terms of both volume and revenue line running through the second quarter, as I mentioned there, plus uh, potential 
FX impact. Uh, that's a quick update then on the story from AB InBev. President Trump says he'll announce in a week or two if China is increasing the buying of US goods as part of a phase one trade deal signed in January before the coronavirus outbreak. Trump questioned whether Beijing was honoring its commitments, adding he will be watching the situation closely. Uh, Steve, let's let's come out to you and let's throw something else into that mix. And um, I know you're also a, a student of the work of high frequency economics, so no doubt you'll have seen the note as well. But interesting that we saw the Treasury yield steepen yesterday on anticipation of higher issuance from the Treasury. And there remains this ongoing question, who is going to buy the three trillion plus worth of new paper that the US Treasury is issuing? Issuing, and our friends over at High Frequency Economics raising the question rather quietly, China would be a potential buyer, but if President Trump keeps tweaking the tail, will China be willing to support the issuance and the accumulation of further debt by the US government? Mm. That's a fascinating angle, actually, Jeff. I hadn't even thought about that this morning. I thought, you know, obviously this growing spat between Mr. Pompeo and Mr. Trump on one side uh, and the reaction from the Chinese on the other. But you're absolutely right. Uh, will the Chinese be willing participants? And of course, then there's the hoary old chestnut. Will the Chinese look to sell down their assets held in treasuries? And I've got to say, in the current world, Jeff, where we have zero interest rates and vast tranches of people globally trying to find a place for their money, including our big story of late last week, I. In fact, early this week, Warren Buffett trying to find a home for $137 billion worth of cash assets as well. I've got to say, whether the Chinese or not are willing participants in future treasury purchases, I almost wonder if it's by the buy as well. And as much as I respect Carl and the team over at HFE as well, I, I think there is a desperation to find a home in safe assets, as seen by uh, David Bloom's uh, ideas that the dollar will remain uh, pretty dominant. So I don't mean to be glib about it because, of course, the issuance I'm mean, everywhere. I mean, I could talk about the issuance coming from uh, the UK government as well and what is being mopped up by the Bank of England. I think it isn't a problem necessarily finding a home for blue chip treasury uh, guilt uh, and perhaps ECB bond assets at the moment as well. But I agree with you. I think it's a very dangerous turn of events what's happening with Mr. Trump uh, and the trans-Pacific brickbats as well. Uh, and I actually just stuck something into a date calculator just trying to find out uh, why we're seeing all this pressure coming on. Because, of course, the 3rd of November is looming for the Americans and looming for Mr. Trump. Uh, and I wonder if the old fashioned distraction techniques, the old fashioned finding an enemy, the them and us uh, technique as well, i.e. if you think you've got problems at home and you think people are going to have a go at your performance uh, in spotting that there was a pandemic coming to US shores uh, and your reaction to that as well, you try and find an enemy. You try and find uh, a them to, as opposed to us. And I wonder if that's part of uh, Mr. Trump's repertoire because it has been, let's be honest about it, successfully many times in the past. Let's refocus for a moment on the on the big question that we sit around this desk and debate every day. If the recovery comes, will it be a V? Will it be a U? Will it be a W? What kind of letter best represents the post-pandemic recovery for both economies and financial markets? And I think in that context, it's interesting watching how China is emerging from the pandemic but also bear 
bearing in mind as we went into this crisis and as we look at that import-export data, global trade was already slowing as a consequence of the two years, or partly as a consequence perhaps, of the two years of trade war we've seen, but also because global debt has been rising and aggregate demand was falling anyway. The question then I still am grappling with is why markets appear to have bought the idea that it will be a V rather than an L or a U. Well, I think, um, look, you know you and I are like an echo chamber sometimes. I go down the road with you to a certain path and now I feel a bit like bank circus here. I must veer off from you, Jeffrey, because I find that actually you're absolutely right. The markets are pricing in something, aren't they? But I don't think they're pricing in a V-shaped recovery. What I think is happening is going back to our original point. There is UK interest rates of 0.1%. Global rates are, fl- uh, are flirting with zero throughout the developed world, flirting with negative territory throughout the rest of the world. And I don't think there is a home for that money. Again, we go back to the Warren Buffett scenarios. What do you do if you have assets? If you are one of those very fortunate people, and I know many people aren't fortunate and are having to take out all kinds of emergency financing procedures, but you actually are still getting paid and you don't know what to do with your money and you've got nothing you can buy and you, you don't want to go on mobile.de or autotrader and buy uh, yet another car. So I think there is asset out there that we hear about this legendary um, PE uh, dry powder. We hear about it from other areas as well where the vulture funds are waiting to find the right assets to buy at the right stage of the cycle. So I think the market is going up, but I don't think it's expecting a V-shaped recovery. And and I'll just fall back on one point that I was trying to raise with a couple of the guests over the last 48 hours or so is, why are you buying this market if you have concerns about the economy? And then the fallback is always, well, we're long-term investors. So I think whether it's V-shaped, U-shaped, whether there is going to be a bumpy road at the bottom, as one of our guests said yesterday, maybe it's the fact that they've got nowhere else to put their money and they're trying to look on a five to seven year cycle, as indeed they've told us for many years, Jeff. Uh, Terrific, Steve. Great conversation. We'll come back to you a little bit later on uh, down there at the Bank of England. Um, We've had uh, from Credit Suisse the financial report this morning and uh, just a few interesting lines here. Uh, It wasn't that long ago that we were actually talking about the quarter as delivered by Credit Suisse, but let's just spend a moment here on just some of these lines coming out of their financial report on the quarter. Credit Suisse says COVID-19's impact on our OTE goal for 2020 cannot be predicted at this time. Credit Suisse says we continue to we continue to hope to achieve our goals in the medium term. The company says the extent to which COVID-19 impacts our business, including with respect to our financial goals and related expectations and ambitions, remains highly uncertain. So just another company, just reflecting on the conversation Steve and I have just had, just another company here that is obviously in the midst of the fog of war when it comes to this pandemic and is telling us that there is opacity around their visibility at this point. We're going to catch up with the Dutch multinational DSM very shortly. They are planning to maintain their dividend, but they have paused the remainder of the share buyback program. We will catch up with the co-CEO Geraldine Maché coming up very shortly. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. 
The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, The Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Morning, everybody. Welcome back. We've got uh, stories backing up here like jumbo jets coming in over Heathrow, but we'll get to Air France in just a moment. Let me just mention Liberty Global. So this is a story that was speculated about widely overnight. Liberty Global and Telefonica confirming they will merge their UK operations to create what they call the leading fixed global, or sorry, mobile uh, provider in the country. Uh, so this story floating around. But we'll come. Well, I'll tell you what. We'll circle back and we'll just have a look at the Air France numbers here, and we'll we'll put that flight on hold, and we'll take KLM. Uh, first quarter operating results in at negative 815 million euros. So that's down 529 million euros compared to last year. The uh, group has um, uh, told us that uh, they're looking at um, likely workforce cuts, that uh, line from the CEO, and they are calling a June meeting to discuss what happens in terms of these jobs numbers. Uh, They see significant uh, negative EBITDA for the first time in full year 2020 on a first quarter revenue of just over 5 billion euros. The second quarter operating loss then significantly higher than the 815 million euros in the first quarter. The uh, group delivering a first quarter net loss of 1.8 billion euros. These uh, losses widening from uh, 324 million euros. KLM to cut structural fleet capacity by 20% in 2021 compared with the 2019 level. And they see, wait for this, capacity down 95% in the second quarter and 80% in the third quarter with progressive lifting of restrictions. And there is a a big question, Marcus, around how these airline companies are going to deal with these additional costs at this point. You may have seen the story that's raising some concerns in Congress overnight that Frontier Airlines is talking of charging $39 if you want to sit next to the empty middle seat. So that would be a social distancing levy. Nothing from Air France KLM on that, but we will talk no doubt more about these airline numbers as we go through the morning. Let's focus on DSM. Uh, DSM is the Netherlands-based nutritions and chemicals business. Geraldine Maché uh, joins us, the co-CEO of DSM. Let me just tell you, it is uh, a beat on the revenue line at 2.29 billion. Uh, it is a um, a beat on the net line at 168 million. Uh, Geraldine, very good morning to you. Just if you wouldn't mind briefly, give us a snapshot on current trading conditions as you reflect on these numbers. Yes, good morning, and thank you for making time for us this morning. Um, As you correctly say, it's been a solid quarter for us in the first quarter, and I have to say that it is uh, very 
uh, much thanks to the strength of our nutrition business um, that has seen a good quarter and a very positive momentum uh, into the, the into Q2 with a good order book. Now, nutrition is about two-thirds of our company. Um, and on the back of the momentum that we're seeing right now, we have been able to put into our outlook um, that we expect to deliver at least mid-single-digit EBITDA growth uh, in 2020. Now, we also have one-third of our company is uh, materials business that serves, amongst others, the automotive sector. And there, uh, we do lack uh, visibility, like all of our peers, as to how the economy is going to pick up. Um, And for that reason, um, we have actually uh, suspended our overall group outlook, but it is very much on the back of the lack of visibility on materials, whereas nutrition is, is going very well. And Geraldine, we started the program by talking about the latest uh, Chinese data and how those numbers were stronger than anticipated. You have operations in China. Could you share with us what you're seeing in the rebound? Absolutely. So we have uh, about 5,000 colleagues in China, uh, about a billion turnover. Uh, And for that reason, actually, we have been made aware very early of the seriousness of the corona situation. Now, what we're seeing now in terms of activity is there is a return to activity, but it is gradual. Um, And we're also seeing very much that this is predominantly domestic. Um, So while things are um, regaining some degree of normalcy, um, we are, you know, it is not it is not back to usual yet. Geraldine, I want to think about a bigger picture with you. And I know your company has for a long while uh, taken on board the climate change uh, problems and and run with it as a company as well. What about nutrition? I'm talking about human nutrition and and animal nutrition. I know in the latest results, this was a positive area for you as well, but I'm thinking longer term. And I don't know who was to blame for this crisis, but I'm thinking longer term, all kinds of farming, all kinds of animal nutrition. I have an opinion that the world needs to change dramatically as well. Does DSM share that? So as you know, we've always been very active when it comes to sustainability and a big part of our offering is not only the nutritional ingredients, but also the environmental impact of uh, food production and animal protein being one of them. So what we expect um, is that we will continue and actually see an acceleration in the need for innovations that make the sustainability of our food systems much stronger. Um, The other thing that clearly uh, is related to the COVID outbreak is the increased sensitivity and awareness of everyone that immunity and and quality of nutrition is going to be key to keep people healthy. Um, So I fully agree with you that there's a a lot of uh, realizations coming with the the corona crisis that will lead um, to increased focus on innovation in this space. And does that innovation mean that we have to completely rethink our entire food chain? And this is a a cause very close to your heart, I know. But do we need to completely rethink industrial farming and how our food gets uh, from farm to plate as well? Because there are a lot of concerns that pandemics will come again and again and again unless we completely rethink this on a global basis and not pointing names at individual countries. 
Well, uh, there's absolutely uh, merit in saying that, you know, the farm to fork uh, journey is something that we have to be more careful about. Um, now, there are, uh, we would not go as far as saying that you have to redesign everything. Um, certain geographies have a much better, um, uh, countries have, you know, a better potential to produce uh, meats um, than others. So you will not necessarily see uh, a return to, you know, local for local only, um, but certainly, you know, the impact of, of animal nutrition, but also the health. So we do a lot of innovation on gut health, for example, um, of animals. Uh, keeping the animals healthy is already a first step um, towards managing these types of issues that we have seen recently. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.